Transfiguration Sunday, which is today, if you haven't yet figured that out, is one of those strange Sundays that serves as a bridge between two liturgical seasons. We are just coming out of Epiphany, which follows Christmas, and moving into the season of Lent, which, by the way, is 40 days. Six weeks, but 40 days, which means Sunday is not a day of Lent. So whatever it is that you choose to give up for Lent, you don't have to give it up on Sunday. That's the break day. That's the resurrection day. And the reason that this mountaintop experience serves as that bridge is because in the text, Jesus, from the beginning of the Gospels, is moving throughout the world into Gentile territory as well as Jewish territory to proclaim the good news of the gospel. And the gospel is simply this. God loves us, regardless of religion or race or creed. God loves us. That's the gospel. And Jesus proclaims that to those who never heard that good news before, as well as to those who thought that they already were loved by God by virtue of their birth or religious standing. But this mountain, you see, stands as the pinnacle of the whole movement back down into the valley of the shadow of death, where Jesus will make his way toward Jerusalem and the inevitability of the cross. Now, the reason that this mountain is important in the Gospels is because the Gospel writers want us to understand the way that this story in the Gospel also connects to the story of Moses, who would go to the top of Mount Sinai and meet with God and receive from God the commandments. We remember the story of the commandments. And we remember the story of Moses getting mad and breaking the commandments and and going back up the mountain, and every time God would go up the mountain to talk to, I mean, excuse me, Moses to talk to God, he would come back down, and his face was so full of the light of the glory of God. The glory, every time you hear the word glory in the Bible, it means the essence, the fullness, the manifestation of the fullness of the beingness. And God's beingness is so beyond our ability to face it that we could never see God face to face and live. But Moses would see the backsides of God or from a askance. And even that would light up Moses' face so bright that he would come back down the mountain and have to wear a veil because the people couldn't come close to Moses without going blind. I just told you the first reading of the Exodus text, which is to also say that you may read that on your own when you get home. Now I'd like to read to you from the message, the New Testament text that we're supposed to see in relationship to that Moses text, how it connects and also how it conflicts. Hear the word as it is given to us in the gospel according to Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. About eight days after saying this, Saying what? After telling his disciples for the first time that he would have to go to Jerusalem and suffer great things, be rejected by the religious authorities, and be killed and on the third day raised, after eight days after telling them this, he climbed the mountain to pray. 
and he took with them Peter, James, and John. While he was in prayer, the appearance of his face changed. It was transfigured, and his clothes became blindingly white. At once, two men were there talking with him. They turned out to be Moses and Elijah. And what a glorious appearance they made. They talked over his exodus, the one Jesus was about to complete in Jerusalem. Meanwhile, Peter and those with him were slumped over in sleep. They always seemed to be sleep-deprived the most important times. When they came to, rubbing their eyes, they saw Jesus in his glory and the two men standing with him. When Moses and Elijah had left, Peter said to Jesus, Master, this is a great moment. Let's build three memorials, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He blurted this out without thinking. While he was babbling on like this, a light, radiant cloud enveloped them. As they found themselves buried in the cloud, they became deeply aware of God. Then there was a voice out of the cloud, This is my Son, the Chosen. Listen to him. When the sound of the voice died away, they saw Jesus there alone. They were speechless, and they continued speechless, said not one thing to anyone during those days of what they had seen. This is the word of the Lord. So I'm going to ask you to do a quick meditation, and that is to relax and close your eyes for a moment and imagine if you were standing face to face with Jesus, close your eyes, you're standing face to face with Jesus, what does he look like? Okay, you can open your eyes. For many of us, it might be that face of Jesus that hangs on all of the mainline church's Sunday school rooms, that Gentile, blonde, blue-eyed face of Jesus that also hangs in the YMCA, by the way. Eric Mann, who's African-American, and I go back-to-back with each other about, I'm saying, that's not the right face of Jesus. And he says, I'm not going to touch it. Or it could have been this face in our resurrection window, but that's a Gentile Jesus too. It could have been a more Middle Eastern face, dark hair, dark eyes, dark complexion, a dark beard, which is probably what Jesus really looked like. Or it might have been no face at all. One time I did that, I found myself not seeing any face, but only Jesus' feet. No matter how hard I tried to lift my head into that face, I could only see feet. Whatever face you got, and maybe even no face, is mostly a part of our own conditioning. The faces of Jesus and the way we understand Jesus are conditioned by the world, the social systems, the family systems, the religious systems, the political systems, all of that part around us that... taught us who Jesus is and given to us an image of that face of Jesus. Well, we're going to try another image of the face of Jesus, and I'm going to ask you to pull your 
insert that looks like this out of your bulletins. And notice that the top is closed in and the bottom is left open. You see the bottom white part in the, br in the black circle. I did this at 8.30 and forgot to tell them which was top and bottom, which only proves my point as we get into it. So the top is, you see how that works? Closed at the top, open at the bottom. Now, you'll see in the middle of that four little dots in a row, right where maybe a nose might go. Stare at that dot about eight inches from your face. Stare at it intently only on those dots, right in the middle of those dots. Don't take your eyes off. Just stare at it for a moment. Now close your eyes. That's pretty cool, isn't it? If you didn't get it, you can take it home and try it there. Just don't call me about directions. The point of this is not only just for fun, but also because it shows us that this Warshock test image of Jesus is much like life. We don't really see what's going on around us, but if we focus on it through faith long enough, the face of Jesus may actually be revealed, even in the most chaotic places. Actually, that's not the real point. That's just one point. That's a two-dimensional point. The real point, to me at least, the poignant point, is that the vision of who Jesus is for us has been etched into our brains just like this vision was etched into our brains when we did this exercise. And every time we close our eyes and think about that vision, that's the face that pops up. This is why the Mount of Transfiguration in this story is so important. It blows out of the water all of the images and visions we have of who Jesus is. And it was certainly true for those disciples. Three times Jesus tells his disciples that he will have to go to Jerusalem where he will have to face the religious authorities and where he will be mocked and spit on and he will suffer and be crucified and then be raised. Three times and the disciples can't see it. Not you, Lord. The first time, in fact, happens right almost before they go up to the mountaintop and Jesus Ask them, who do people say that I am? Some say you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, some Moses. But who do you say? Peter says, you're the Jesus, you're the Messiah. And, and Jesus orders them not to tell anybody because Jesus knew that they didn't know what they were talking about. Certainly, Peter didn't know what he was talking about because when he told Peter what that meant, that he would have to go to Jerusalem and suffer and be crucified, Peter said, not you, Lord. And that was the point, you remember, where... Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. You don't know what you're talking about. So he goes up to the mountaintop. And the disciples are all expecting this Davidic Messiah. 
in Jesus. This political, military Messiah who is going to come back like David and make Israel great again. And this Messiah, even if using force, was going to be the one that they would all fall behind. That's who they saw in Jesus. And for good reason. He had healed many people uh, of their, their afflictions. He had committed uh, or done many miracles. Certainly they saw that. So then when they go to the mountaintop, what more evidence do you need? The glory of God comes down on Jesus' face and he is surrounded by Moses and Elijah. It's all coming together now. Of course, they didn't see most of it. They were sleeping. But when they woke up there, it was. Of course, they're overcome with the reality. This must be the Messiah that we have all been looking for, for sure. And so Peter wants to build memorials, of course. You get some tangential presence there, at least. How lonely it must have been for Jesus to have been so misunderstood his whole life. The disciples never get this, you see, throughout his whole life until the cross. And even then, it's suspect whether they got it. They got it at resurrection, but at the cross, they scrambled. The women got it at the cross. The centurion got it at the cross. But the disciples are still living with this burnt-in image of who the Messiah should be and look like. And they could not get past it. Why does it take such drastic suffering to change our minds? I have a good friend in Atlanta whose son is gay. He was born gay. We, his good friends, my, played with my daughters. We knew when he was three that he was gay, but my good friend could not see that. He was so biased against it He would not let him see that until his son almost took his life. And at that point, they went into mutual therapy together, and his father was finally able to overcome his bias. His burnt-in perception and bias and embrace and love his son and does to this day. He changed because because of the dramatic moment of suffering. Why does it take that for us to change? Why does it take a crucifixion or us to be at the foot of the cross looking up at this crucified Christ for us to finally see the unbelievable love and forgiveness that's being offered there for us? What is it about these veils that we hide behind. I'm going to call them biases. We see what we do not, what we see, what we expect to see, and we do not see what we're not looking for. There's an amazingly new book out called Visual Intelligence by Ann Herman about how much we miss with our eyes. How much of what we really see, we're not seeing. We misperceive it. What she says is basically the eyes aren't eyes. They're part of the brain. And it's the brain that interprets everything that we see. And the brain is full of all the 
preconceived notions of what we should see or shouldn't see. And so it determines what it is that we perceive with our eyes. It, it, it just bypasses everything. It's like the computer. Our eyes are the computer, and the brain is the software, and what gets spit out is whatever software we have inside of it. And the software, of course, is biased, as I said, according to our own cultural uh, enrichment. She says that politically, racially, socially, educationally, economically, tribally, religiously, we all suffer from misperception and bias. I've got a list. Maybe I left them in my office. Wikipedia's cognitive bias. Look it up. 104 listed for cognitive biases. One of my favorites is the blind spot bias. We see ourselves as less biased than everybody else. Or the naive realism bias. We believe that we see reality as it really is, objectively and without bias. Facts are plain for all to see and rational people will agree with us, or they are either uninformed, lazy, biased, or irrational. Now they're evil if they don't agree with us. Some of these biases are not all bad, they're necessary for survival. We have to think fast, and the fast thinking has a bias attached. We have to think fast to survive. They're not all bad. But most of them are conditioned and need to be looked at more carefully. I used to think that if you line up all the biases, 104 cognitive and 54 social biases and 28 memory biases, if you lined them up, that would be a great lineup of all the sins this is what sin looks like. But I've decided that, you know, we're all biased. Human beings are biased in our own way because we don't know mortality and we're finite. We're going to always be. It's not that we're biased that's sinful. What's sinful? What's sinful is that we do not admit that we are biased. What's sinful is that we think we know without bias. That's what's sinful. Jesus saw that in each and every single one of us, which is exactly why he forgave us from the cross. Emily Dickinson saw this when she wrote the poem on the front of your bulletin. Tell the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies, never straight on. Too bright for our infirm delight, the truth's superb surprise. The truth is that which hits us in a way that we cannot disclaim it. It gets past our biases and perceived notions of what is true. And when we face it, it does us in. He knew that they misunderstood him. They wanted him to be something that he was not. They were biased to a messianic warrior. He knew that he would finally end up at the cross where they would have to either claim him as Messiah or not. He knew that only at that cross would they see his face finally. Not the illuminated, glorified 
face, but uh, suffering, broken, bleeding, swollen face, through whose swollen eyes they would look up and see, even through that puffiness, the eyes of unconditional love. Through his swollen tongue, where he could barely speak, they would still be able to hear the muffled sound of his voice saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. At the foot of the cross, as we look up into the face of Jesus, all our biases are washed clean by that love. And we see precisely, at least for a moment, who we are and whose we are and what love is actually all about. There's an old book out by Peter DeVries called The Blood of the Lamb. He loses his three-year-old daughter to leukemia after praying his heart out for months that Jesus would save her. The day of her death, someone had given him a big cream pie, and as he stood outside the door of the hospital, it was a Catholic hospital, there was a large crucifix stationed right on the wall, and so he picks up the cream pie and flings it perfectly into the face of Jesus and screams, you SOB, take that. The shot was perfect, it couldn't have been done better on vaudeville. And as he's standing there, he then perceives huge teardrops coming out of that crucified face, purging and washing away the cream on his cheeks. And it knocks him to his grief-ridden knees in gratitude. He just lost his three-year-old daughter But in that moment of seeing the pain and suffering of Christ, he came to see that he was not alone, that God was with him even in that, that Jesus knows what suffering is like with us, and that death does not have the last word. So here's something to give up for Lent. Just think. If we claim the fact that we are riddled with bias, how much different our conversations would be with each other? I don't know the full truth. I'm biased when I say it. Help me understand your truth, even though you know you're biased too. And thus, two people in biased conversation can maybe get to some place that we would not get to otherwise if we both thought that we were in full knowledge. How different our world would be if we could claim the humility of that and address each other differently. So give up for Lent this. Give up for Lent those stupid television newscasts, CNBC and Fox News, that we turn to only for confirmation bias that confirms to us what we already think we know. Give it up for Lent. Not just for 40 days, on Sundays too. 
I promise you, you'll be better for it. Amen.